Hello and welcome to another episode of My Favorite Trees. My name is Thomas and I love trees. This week we're covering part two of our second fruit tree miniseries. It's time to talk about the pear tree. And I do not like pears. But Thomas, you may exclaim, this is my favorite trees. I thought this show was all about trees you like. Here's the thing. I don't have to enjoy the taste of a tree's fruit to love the tree's history. So that's what I'll focus my creative efforts on today. Regardless of my personal feelings and taste buds, pears are an incredibly common fruit across the globe, and many people do love them. Apparently, they're ranked in the top 20 most popular fruits in the United States, and I can't say I'm totally surprised that there's 19 other fruits out there more popular than this one. Alright, alright, I need to go ahead, cut the sass, because I know that there are some of you out there that are thinking, well, I like pears. The pear, like any other commercially grown tree fruit, has been on an incredible journey from where these trees once grew wild. One of love, of immortality, and of generosity. fascinating things about the pear tree, to me, is the fact that commercial pear fruits can come from multiple species. This is relatively uncommon when it comes to the produce at the grocery store. Typically what you are looking at are fruits from a single species that have been bred and hybridized to create hundreds of cultivated varieties with different characteristics. But every apple comes from Malus domestica, every pomegranate from Punica granatum, every mango from Mangifera indica, and on and on. Pears belong to the genus, or group, known in Latin as pyrus, which just means pear. Within this genus are around 30 different species of pear, and three of them are cultivated and sold on a global scale. These three species are broadly referred to as the European pear, the Chinese pear, which is actually a hybrid, and the Asian pear, which is also called the Nashi pear, or the Chinese pear, or Japanese, or Korean, or a dozen other names depending on where you are. And these are really just the biggest three. There are several other distinct species that also produce decently popular fruits, but are simply grown and sold in the region they are native to. And then there's the calorie pear, also known as the Bradford pear. My feelings towards this tree have nothing to do with my beef concerning pear fruits. But I made a whole episode about those feelings, episode 17 to be exact, and I'll let you go listen to it for yourself. I'm not going to bring that storm into this episode. The genus Pyrus can be found in the rose family, Rosaceae. It's a massive and incredibly diverse plant family that is broken up into a bunch of different subfamilies and tribes. Today, we're just going to focus on the subfamily known scientifically as Amygdaloideae. This subfamily is home to some recognizable food-producing trees like the almond tree, the cherry tree, the plum tree, and the peach tree, which I'm excited to talk about next episode. The theme across all these plants is that their fruits are what we call stone fruits. They have a fleshy exterior with a hard pit in the middle that encases the seed. Even the fruit that bears the almond shares this structure. Which makes things a little bit awkward because this subfamily 
also contains apples and pears. These fruits are called pomes. They also have a fleshy exterior, which you eat, but the core is more leathery and cartilaginous. There is some biological similarity that connects them, though. The seeds of most of these plants, pears and apples included, contain a toxin known as amygdalin, which can undergo chemical reactions in our bodies that turn it into cyanide. Which is a fun thing to have in common. But I've seen some refer to this subfamily as the corner of the rose family where we get economically important fruits. And that's really not what biological divisions are for. But I'm not the only one that thinks this family matching is a little strange. Robert Frost finds their inclusion in the rose family altogether to be a bit silly. He writes, The rose is a rose and was always a rose, but the theory now goes that the apple's a rose and the pear is and so's the plum, I suppose. The deer only knows what will next prove a rose. You, of course, are a rose, but we're always a rose. I made sure to talk about family relationships first because as I present the physical characteristics of pear trees, you are likely to notice some more similarities they share with their amygdaloidus cousins. You of course know what a pear looks like? Probably. Their shape is so iconic that the definitive term for it is pear-shaped. Not good enough for you? Okay, you can also call it pyriform, which in Latin means pear-shaped. Still, fine, to be pear-shaped means to have a wide base that sharply tapers to a narrow top end, and on the fruit, that is where the little stem sticks out. This is merely the most common shape of pear, but if you happen to be a man named Gao Xianzhong from China, then pears can be whatever shape you like. This man developed a method for growing pears that causes them to grow into the shape of baby Buddhas. I'm not exactly sure how he does it, I'm assuming he has some baby Buddha plastic mold that he has the pear grow into, but it apparently took him six years to get the Buddha shape just right. So if you've uh, ever wanted to eat a baby, but for ethical reasons can't, give my man Gao a call. Continuing with what a normal pear is like, the structure is referred to as pomiferous. Pretty much what I explained earlier with the edible fleshy exterior and the cartilaginous core. You know, exactly like an apple. Now, what I personally find most disturbing about pears is the texture of that fleshy exterior. Any pear that I've tried has been really mealy, like too soft, upsettingly wet, and grainy. I think the pear flavor is okay, honestly, but I can't get over the mealiness. And I'm sure that not every pear is like that, but I've just been hurt too many times. In fact, I know that not every pear is like that because there's a type of pear popular in East Asia that is called an apple pear. It's not at all any more closely related to apples. The name simply comes from the fact that the shape is more spherical, like an apple, and the texture is more crisp, like an apple. This sounds great, and I'd love to try it, but if these fruits were bred to just take on the good characteristics of apples, then why not just eat an apple? I digress. The first pear fruit that humans consumed and for some reason decided was worth continuing eating would not have been possible without pear flowers. Pear flowers are really quite lovely, typically five-petaled and a clean shade of white. They're quite similar to almond or even cherry blossoms. 
It's actually because these flowers are so lovely that the Bradford pear was first extensively bred. And that's all I'm going to say about Bradford pear flowers here, moving right along. So, these pear flowers were made from the energy the tree obtained thanks to photosynthesis performed by its leaves. And pear tree leaves are honestly just super generic. I hate to lean on describing stuff like this, but these are just some straight-up green oval leaf-shaped leaves. Go look them up, I'm right. The overall pear tree, when grown in an orchard, reaches heights of up to 20 feet or 6 meters. In the wild, they can get a bit taller, with naturally grown pear trees reaching heights of up to 50 feet, or 15 meters. And that's a pretty normal difference between any tree that's grown in the wild in good conditions, and a tree that is planted in an orchard. For one thing, it doesn't make sense to let a tree get super tall if you eventually want to easily get the fruit down. Another is the lifespan of the tree. On an orchard, the pear tree might make it to 50 years, while if left alone, they can potentially live for over 200 years. In fact, there's a pear tree in China that, according to the Guinness Book of World Records, is over 450 years old. There's also a pear tree in Massachusetts named the Endicott pear that was planted around 1630 and is considered the oldest cultivated fruit tree in all of North America. It's actually like a 25-minute drive away from me, so I should really go check it out. It's listed on Google Maps as a shrine, and I love that. The fact that pear trees can live for centuries was well noted in China, and led to some of its major symbolism. But China is only one of the places where pears are native. Various species are found growing all across the Old World, from Europe to Asia. Because modern pears come from numerous species found growing in multiple areas, it's difficult to pin down the location where humans first started domesticating these fruits. Some theories, backed by genetic research, point to the Caucasus region, where Russia meets the Middle East. So that is where we will start our journey through history today, in the modern countries of Georgia, Armenia, and Azerbaijan. Some time ago, I read about a group of people known as the Nakh, and the Vainak religion that they practiced, which involved a great love of the pear tree. This little tidbit is what led me to further investigate and ultimately write about this tree, because I had never heard of this, and I'm assuming most of you haven't either. The Vainak faith system was observed by various peoples, such as the Chechens and the English across the Caucasus region hundreds of years ago. This was a polytheistic religion, though it's theorized to have some connections to the more eastern Zoroastrianism. In this religion, it was believed that everything in this world held a soul. Some things could hold multiple souls, and any given plant or animal or other natural feature could have its own soul while also containing the souls of our ancestors. It is believed that trees were most significant in this faith system because it was trees that contained the souls of the gods. And for one reason or another, the pear tree was especially beloved by these people. I'm curious as to whose soul was expected to be held by the pear tree, 
But only so much folklore survives after cultures are converted to other faiths, like how these peoples were variably converted to either Christianity or Islam over the course of the Common Era. It seems that the Vinok religion and its worship of the pear tree have been quite fully replaced, so at this point it is difficult to determine how old their practices were with what verbal evidence remains. Is this where the fruit of the pear tree was first domesticated? Perhaps. But perhaps it was first domesticated in ancient Sumer 5,000 years ago, where we get the oldest written mention of the pear. These written mentions are theorized to indicate the origins of our modern word for the fruit. The word pear most recently comes from the Old High German word para, but that is loaned from the Latin pyrus. It is expected that this Latin word itself was loaned from somewhere. Maybe Semitic language? The Semitic language group is where we get modern Hebrew and Arabic, but that's about as far as we know. Following this language trail is important because it helps us understand how the pear itself was carried from culture to culture. And how now brings us to the question of how much. The pear was traded extensively throughout history and written about fondly by the great naturalists and philosophers of the classical world. Homer presented us with the importance of the pear to the Greek gods and included it in the famed Garden of Alcinous among other prized species. Theophrastus and Pliny the Elder both discussed the numerous varieties of pears already in circulation throughout ancient Greek and Rome, and it is believed to have been by Roman conquest that this fruit was subsequently introduced to the rest of Europe. Although, evidence of pear consumption in Europe does date back to Ice Age era Switzerland over 10,000 years ago. At the very least, more modern varieties of pears didn't so heavily influence European art and culture until after Roman conquest. Fast forwarding through widespread cultivation a bit, the pear tree was introduced to the New World by Italian explorers in the 16th century. In the next century, the British would introduce it to the East Coast in the American colonies, though it didn't really enjoy the climate there well enough to thrive on a large scale. After another hundred years or so, the Spanish and French introduced these fruit trees to their missions on the west coast, in California. Pears did do well here, and some good orchards were set up on this side of the continent. Then, in the 1800s, California's gold rush would bring a flood of people to the area, and some immigrants introduced even more new pears. Specifically, it was Chinese workers who introduced to America their own Asian pear. You see, when the pear went west from Mesopotamia to Europe, it also went east to China. Or was it already there? It is theorized that the first domesticated pear, which was found in Caucasia and Mesopotamia, could also be found in western China. Writings discussing the introduction of the pear to the Far East coincide with the first fruit reaching the Mediterranean Sea. Since then, a great deal of symbolism has been attributed to the pear tree in the lands of China. The pear has strong ties with immortality and longevity, thanks to the tree's ability to live for hundreds of years. The pear is also associated with love, but for an interesting reason concerning the Chinese language. The Chinese word for the pear is li, and the Chinese phrase for sharing a pear with someone translates as fen li. Fen li, coincidentally, is also how you pronounce the Chinese word for separation. Because of this, it is seen as superstitious to share a pair with a loved one, lest you soon separate. And it's also given birth to an idiom, with the phrase sharing a pair with someone to mean that you are leaving them romantically. 
Contrary to your lack of ability to share pairs with your loved ones, the pair has also taken on symbolism associated with generosity in China. This notion comes from a variety of Chinese folktales, one of which is called the Magic Pear Tree. A long time ago, there was a pear merchant who brought a wagon load of his fruit to the nearby market. A ragged monk came up to him and asked if he could just give him a pear. The merchant said no, he had to pay for it, and a great argument started because the merchant had so much while this monk clearly had nothing. The commotion attracted a crowd who allied against the stubborn salesman. Finally, someone just went ahead and bought a pear to give to the monk so the whole thing would be settled. But the monk wasn't finished. He wanted everyone to know how easy it was to be generous, saying that he would now give everyone in the crowd a pear. He ate the fruit that was bought for him as quickly as he could, then buried the core in the ground. The monk poured a cup of water on the spot, and in no time, a tree started to grow. It sprouted leaves and flowers, and then hundreds of perfectly ripe pears. He picked these off of this instant tree and handed them out to everyone in the crowd. Then he proceeded to just cut the tree down and carry it off. The merchant was completely confused as to what just occurred, then noticed that his wagon load of pears was now empty, and a handle off his wheelbarrow was missing. He realized that all the pears that had just been given out had been his, and the chopped down tree the monk carried off was discovered lying in the road to be the broken wagon handle. The monk had fooled the merchant for being stingy, but had it been real magic or mere illusion? The story does not say. When the pear was later introduced to Korea and Japan, this theme of generosity continued in these cultures. The connection continues to the modern day because fruit can be quite expensive over in East Asia and is thus seen as a nice gift. It's probably as expensive as it is because dudes keep growing them into weird shapes like Buddha babies. But in whatever form, the fruit is incredibly well-loved in those regions. Both South Korea and Japan have a whole pear museum, and Japan's Totara Nijiseki Pear Museum looks super cool. Over at Nashikokan, you start off with an exhibit showcasing the pear's geographic journey. Other attractions include Japan's largest pear tree, with branches that spread across the entire museum space. Back in 1999, this very tree produced 4,000 pears at 74 years old. Most farm-raised pear trees only live to 50 years and produce just 800 pears in a growing season. You can also watch a reenactment performed by robots of farmers growing pears in the traditional ways. There's a pear playground, a pear art gallery, and a pear kitchen, which is the most popular part of the museum. You guys know by now how I feel about pears, but this place sounds fun. Across East Asia, pears are as prevalent in culture as apples are over here in the United States. China accounts for almost 70% of global pear production, and very little of that is exported to other countries. Back in America, were you to find a pear at your local grocery store, it probably came from the Pacific Northwest region, in Washington State, Oregon, and Northern California. The most common variety of pear in the U.S. is the Bartlett pear, which I think is the only kind of pear I've tried. It's a variety of the European pear species, and it's always been just too weird a texture for me. And up until this point, I've never had an Asian pear. So this weekend, I went to a Korean supermarket and picked one up to try and give pears another chance. It's right in front of me, so let's try it. I'm also recording a video version of this first try for 
my uh, for my Patreon viewers, this is going to go on my Patreon. But for you folks at home, the pear is a very pale yellow. Uh, it is a little bit more round than it is pear-shaped. It's got little darker yellow spots all over it. Uh, this is a variety of Chinese pear. Came with its own cute little packaging. But whatever. Let's go ahead and uh, give it a taste. It smells smells very crisp. Smells very fresh. I'm not sure exactly the word for it. Hmm. Yeah, I don't think I'm into it. I don't think I'm into it. The texture, I was thinking maybe if it's an Asian pear, the texture is going to be something different. But it's still uh, wetter than I would like it to be. Still softer than I would like it to be. Had a nice, like, crisp sound to it. But uh, it's a little soft. Uh, the skin is quite bitter. The taste is okay. Again, because it's so wet, that's just like the moisture content of it. It's more watery than anything. Oh, this is disappointing. Yeah, I don't like pears. I want to. And maybe I'll try again in the future. Try one of those apple pears. I don't know. I, I believe that everything is an acquired taste. I think that being a picky eater really just limits the number of wonderful experiences that this world has to offer. Uh, usually, if I don't like the taste of something... I'll just try a different kind of it or mix it with some different flavor palettes until the tasty parts of my brain just figure themselves out. But aside from the flavor of it, I really do just love the long, fascinating history of this tree. And one day, one day, perhaps I will also enjoy the sweet results of such a journey. Again, if you'd like to see my facial reaction to eating that pear, as disappointing as it was, uh, head on over to my Patreon and you'll find it there. But something else to look forward to on my Patreon is my next Tree Walk with Thomas video. Remember how I mentioned in this episode how the oldest fruit tree in the United States is only 25 minutes away? Well, I'm going to check out this famed Endicott pear and give a little more of its history in my next offering of bonus content to patrons who support the show. If you want to see it for yourself, head over to patreon.com slash myfavoritetrees and consider subscribing at the Treehugger tier level. Don't forget that for every $5 pledged, one of those dollars is going to a quarterly chosen sustainable nonprofit, and right now we're raising money for the Longleaf Alliance, which helps restore longleaf pine ecosystems in the American South. And unfortunately, this second fruit tree episode train will soon be reaching its final stop. In two weeks, I will conclude this mini-series with the peach tree. The peach is another tree fruit with a rich history in East Asia, influencing names for colors, folk heroes, and Lunar New Year traditions. Check back in on May 30th as we hit the Silk Road one more time and address whether or not these fruits should also symbolize immortality, what the heck nectarines are, and how we're building long-lasting culture in our modern day with emojis. I want to thank all of you for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it, please consider leaving a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify to help us grow. The music is by Academy Garden. You can find more of their awesome stuff at academygarden.bandcamp.com. 
My cover art is by at BoomerangBrit on Instagram. My script editor and social media manager is the wonderful Lori Hilburn. Find me on Twitter and Facebook at MyFavoriteTrees or on Instagram at TreePodcast. You can support me directly by joining my Patreon at patreon.com slash MyFavoriteTrees or donate directly to a sustainable organization like the ones found on my website, mftpodcast.com. Now, go find a tree that you love and give it a hug. <laughs>